Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. A few weeks back, some friends and I were talking about movies, and we were sharing, one friend asked us for a hot take on a movie. So we're all sharing a hot take, like a novel or unpopular opinion regarding a movie. And then we, were, we, we, we veered towards Star Wars. And one of my friends just came out of the gate swinging. He said, the best Star Wars movie ever made is Episode Seven: The Force Awakens. Oh, Michael's cringing. He's cringing. <clears throat> well, mayhem, mayhem ensued. Um, but last week I decided to rewatch episode seven with an open mind. My friend, he was not that wrong, in my opinion. I don't think it's the best movie. I think it's a good movie, though. I may even put it second, maybe third, behind Empire Strikes Back. Don't, don't, Michael. <clears throat> That's not the point, however. When I was rewatching the movie, the scene near the beginning of the film just happened to slot very nicely into this sermon. Um, Finn. The, the defected stormtrooper. He crash lands in the desert. He's in this extreme desert of Jakku, and he finds himself dying of thirst. He stumbles into town, barely able to mouth, because his, you know, his mouth is so dry. Water, water, and it's nowhere to be found. And eventually, he finds the only water source there is, which, if you've seen it, you may recall, is this massive space animal trough. And he has tunnel vision, because he's just so thirsty, so he just goes and he starts drinking it. He ignores this sort of tank-sized combination of a hippo and a pig that is drinking from the trough beside him, and it's filling the well with its slobber. And after a few gulps, he, he kind of gags, and he looks up at it, at this giant space hippo pig, and then he plunges his face back in for a second round because he's just that thirsty. So like your body, your soul thirsts. It's one of the points of this sermon. Jesus tells us today that each of us has a choice. It's not if we will drink or not. It's you will drink. And you're either going to drink the living water or you're going to drink not the living water. You're going to drink good, clean water or you're going to drink disgusting water, like space hippo pig water. Um, I guess that's the analogy. So we're going to jump into John 4. If you have a Bible, please follow along. There's going to be, I don't always do this, but this morning I'm going to move right through kind of verse by verse and do a little teaching. And then after we're done with that, we'll turn to application. So follow along with me in John 4 verse 5. where we read this. Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. I want to point out that the place and the people and the time, all these aspects of setting, are really significant in the story. So first, the place is Jacob's well in Samaria. This might we, you know, we might call it holy geography. It's this very significant place. Mount Gerizim is in the background, literally, probably looming in the background as they talk. The site of Deuteronomic blessing and Samaritan worship. Um, and in time, what comes into view in this dialogue is that Jesus is greater than Jacob. His well is better than Jacob's well. His ministry will transcend even the holiest of geographies of structures and locations. So that's the setting. And the people are Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Why is that significant? Well, John's aside in verse 9, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. It masks a long and, and, and hateful history, really, between these two people groups. The Samaritans had built a temple 
on Mount Gerizim in 400 B.C., which the Jews destroyed in 128 B.C., because they claimed that proper worship must be rendered in Jerusalem. So there's a lot of animosity between these two people. What is more, know that Jesus is violating all kinds of social customs in this scene. First, a man and a woman and a well is Old Testament for marriage, for meeting your bride. So Jacob had met Rachel at a well and so on and so forth. Second, it's not customary for any man and any woman to dialogue in isolation in this culture for any extended period of time, much less a Jew and a Samaritan, much less about theology. It's outrageous. Third, the Samaritan woman, like all Gentiles, were in a continual state of ritual uncleanliness. So if Jesus were actually to drink the water that, she, that he asked for, he would have become unclean. So Jesus is breaking all kinds of social customs here in pursuit of his mission, which is more important than the social customs. So there's the place, the people, and finally there's the time. What time is it? It's high noon. Why is this so significant? Well, first, why would this woman be at the well alone at high noon? Everyone knows you come to the well in the morning when it's nice and cool or in the evening when it's nice and cool. Likely she's there because she's a social outcast, probably because of her immorality, which will be seen in time. Second, this, this blinding noonday sun illuminates the Samaritan woman as a, a literary foil for Nicodemus, who we, we explored the week before. It comes right before this chapter, John 3. He's a man, she's a woman. He's named, she's unnamed. He's educated, she's uneducated. He's a Jew, she's a Samaritan. He's respected, she's an outcast. He comes under cover of night, she comes under the light of the noonday sun. In fact, this woman is, I think, the, the narrative fulfillment, kind of the punchline of Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus. For God so loved the world, the world, not only religiously elite Jewish men, but outcast, uneducated, Samaritan women, the world. So Jesus is beginning to move his mission onto the world. So all this informs, you know, the woman's confused response. How can you ask me for a drink? How can you possibly, why are you even speaking to me? Here, at a well, at noon, alone. That's the setting. So continuing on in verse 10, Jesus answers her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And two phrases here leap off the page, gift of God and living water. What is Jesus talking about? Well, the gift of God, when you first read it, you might just think, well, that's Jesus, right? Well, John 3 clarifies that the gift of God is actually the Spirit of God. God gives the Son all things, including the Spirit without measure, and the Son and the Father together give the Spirit in abundance. Likewise, living water refers to the Holy Spirit. The Samaritan woman wouldn't have known this, as Jesus is hearing, you know, talking about it. She's thinking quite literally of physical water. So you could read these words very, very literally. Living water means literally running water, like a, a fresh, clean river, a running stream as opposed to still stagnant water. So thinking, literally, she asked in verse 11, Sir, where can, where can I get it? That sounds good. But are, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well to drink from it himself? Implicitly, the answer is yes. Jesus answers, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up. And those are the key words I want to look at. Welling up to eternal life. Here the reader begins to understand, Jesus is not offering magic water, to forever quench physical thirst. He is offering living water. This is a metaphor. Last week, the Bible Project explained to us what eternal life is, this living water that wells up into eternal life. What is it? Eternal life is not just duration. 
it is also a quality of heavenly life available to us today. So I want to point out one Old Testament and one New Testament use of this same Greek word, welling up. It's the same Greek word in Isaiah 35, 6, this chapter which foresees the renew of all things. In the Greek version, then shall the lame man leap like a deer. That word leap is the same as this word welling up here. The lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And then in the New Testament, in Acts 14, eternal life welled up in a man, in Acts 14.10, who had been lame from birth, and he jumped up, same word, welled up, jumped up, and began to walk. That's what the Spirit does. It wells up within people, affecting radical spiritual change always. Sometimes that overflows into even physical change. Eternal life makes men leap like a deer, makes streams run in a desert. And here in verse 13, Jesus begins to reveal himself as the one who gives this eternal life. He repeats it twice for emphasis in verse 13. The water I give, the water I give. The woman said to him in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming. Here to, she's very practical, isn't she? I want to save the steps. I'm not trying to get 10,000 steps. I just want to like get the water and go home. She's thinking very literally, so Jesus presses. He told her, go call your husband and come back. Continuing on in 17, she says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Five husbands now living with some random guy. That's why she's alone at the well at noon. And yet this immoral Samaritan outcast is who Jesus chooses to reveal his identity to. See something of the heart of God there, don't you? Why would Jesus ask her to call her husband anyhow? Was this to guilt her? No, the context doesn't suggest that. Is it to demonstrate his omniscience? Well, maybe, yes, partly. It has that effect, but also because of his mission. In the words of one commentator, go call your husband is Jesus' way of gaining access to the entire Samaritan community. Because she has no husband, the woman will summon the whole town. And they will come not just to the spring, but to Jesus and to salvation. It's his way of expanding this interaction to get the whole town involved. Well, the woman proves to be quite the sparring partner. She continues in verse 19. Sir, said the woman, I can see that you're a prophet. Okay, but she's still going to test him a little bit. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming and now is the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Why, Why is she <clears throat> suddenly asking about mountains and worship? I think this is a test. Given the whole dynamic of this conversation, Jew versus Samaritan, and they have two separate sites of worship, this is her way of asking if Jesus, okay, I see you're a prophet, but are you like a partisan Jew? Are you just for your people? Or do you care about my people? Are you just like ethnocentric? And if, to follow you, I'm going to have to become Jew and adopt my life? To, she's, she's trying to feel this out a little bit. And Jesus' answer defies categories. He says that indeed the Messiah comes from the Jews, that is, himself. He's honest about that. But he doesn't ask her to become Jewish. 
If neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, then where is the question? Where are we supposed to worship? In spirit and truth is his answer. Instead of saying, you Samaritans will worship, he now says, the true, worth of, true worshipers will worship. Do You see, he's uniting Jew and Samaritan alike under the umbrella common worship of the Father who is worshiped in spirit and truth because he's spirit. So it's this really fascinating nuanced answer. And then he continues in verse 25. I know the Messiah called the Christ is coming. When he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, I, the one who is speaking to you, I am he. And that should sound familiar. For the first time of many in the Gospel of John, Jesus here adopts the divine formula, I am, to make known his identity. Despite the historical preeminence, yes, of, of uh, you know, his fellow Jews, isn't it striking that Jesus first embraces this own title, this divine title for himself on Samaritan soil with a Samaritan woman? Not in the halls of power in the temple, not around the Pharisees, right here. I am, he reveals himself. And finally, to close out the story, the disciples return surprised to find Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, breaking these codes of conduct. And we read a little, um, great little detail in verse 28. Then, leaving her jar of water, it reads, Leaving her jar of water, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. She leaves her jar, presumably still empty. We don't, we don't know for sure, but presumably still empty. But her thirst, it seems, has been quenched. She's forgotten why she came there in the first place, because her thirst has been quenched by the presence of Jesus. You know, this sudden abandonment of duties is seen elsewhere in the Gospels, namely, the first disciples were called the fishermen who left their nets. They left everything to follow him. Implicitly, she's become a disciple. Chrysostom sings her praises as this superior evangelist. He says this, They, the disciples, they were called and they left their nets, but she, of her own accord, leaves her water pot and, winged by joy, performs the office of an evangelist. And she calls not one or two, as did Andrew and Philip, but having aroused a whole city and people, so brought them to him. What an amazing woman. Many disciples return and urge. So many, the whole town comes and they, they hear his word and they believe. But many disciples now, all the disciples come back and they return and they urge him to eat. But he says to them, I have food that you don't know anything about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And so here at the end of the story, Jesus never got the drink that he wanted in the first place for which he thirsted, nor does he take up any food. He's hungry and he's thirsty and yet he's satisfied by obedience to his Father. And that's, that's a picture of Lent in miniature right there. And the scene finally draws to a close. The Samaritans come and they believe the woman's testimony. They become believers and they say that the punchline, we now know this man really is the Savior of the world. The Samaritan community speaks for all Gentiles now, acknowledging Jesus as the Savior of the world. All right, so we've, I've tried to give this story a little bit of room to breathe. And now I wonder, how do we apply it? What does this mean for our lives? I just want to say two very simple things. Only Jesus saves and only Jesus satisfies. Only Jesus saves and only Jesus satisfies. We could say many things about this story, but that's two. Only Jesus saves. There is, there is a specificity and an exclusivity in the story that really does cut against the grain of some of our sensibilities, doesn't it? We live in a multicultural, multi, a pluralistic society. We don't want to offend our neighbors. Jesus says, I am. 
claiming Yahweh's title. He claims to give living water, implicitly saying the other wells are not living water, they're dead water, the ways of the world. And he says, salvation is from the Jews. Can you say that? He's called Savior of the world. It's true, there's a little bit of offense in this claim that Jesus alone saves. But consider the alternative. Most modern people like us, we begin with a general sense of, of inclusivity. And when pressed, it's like, but why? I think it's probably just an inheritance from Christendom. We, we have a deep belief that everyone's made in the image of God and deserves respect, and so we should be kind to one another, absolutely. But now this sort of just vague sense of inclusivity is based on, like, no one's really sure, but it seems good, so we do it. Except we exclude some people who, mostly those people who, like, believe something. You know, if you believe something too much, then, then you might be excluded. But Jesus kind of operates the opposite way, very charitably. He begins with a highly particular vantage point, and he, he's honest about it. He doesn't claim to have this view from nowhere that's fully objective and like, no, he's, I'm a Jew, I'm a first century Jew, and this is who I am. I'm the savior of the world, I'm the living water, I alone save. But then, but then, he very quickly broadens his arms to include anyone and everyone. Christianity is not exclusive. It begins at a particular point and broadens to embrace the whole world. That's the story. From the Jewish Pharisee to the Samaritan woman, eventually to the very edges of the world, God wraps his arms around anyone and everyone who wants to come and drink. In Confronting Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin tells the story of her friend Praveen Sethupathi. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but Praveen. He's a professor of genetics at Cornell University. Growing up um, as a Hindu, with Hindu parents who had immigrated from India, his conversion to Christianity was disturbing to his parents. They were afraid he was rejecting his Indian heritage, his Indian upbringing. They were wondering if he'd change his name to Peter or John or Frank or something. Praveen assured them, becoming a Christian is not rejecting my Indian heritage. It's not rejecting who God made me to be. Rather, it is about embracing Christ. God became present in history through Christ. I need him. He's the living water. Now, where some aspects of his heritage clash with Christ, yes, he might have to leave them behind, but he would remain a proud Indian. He would delightfully teach his children about the riches of Indian culture. You know, and ask Praveen, and and he will tell you, to claim that that Hinduism and Christianity are equally and uh, true and compatible is to do violence to both. It's to do violence to both. And so actually when we disagree with someone about a truth claim, we respect them because we engage what they believe, they engage what we believe, and we don't minimize one another. In C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair, a young girl named Jill is very thirsty, and she's walking in search of water. And she finds a stream, but she stops dead in her tracks, and Lewis writes this. Although the sight of water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward to drink. She stood still, as if she had been turned into a stone with her mouth wide open, and with very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay a lion. Aslan, of course. Her thirst was so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink, said the lion. The voice said again, if you're thirsty, come and drink. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. <laughs> the lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. 
The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step closer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. But this was the worst thing she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. That's the honest truth, friends. To drink this living water requires you risk trusting the lion's words. I am. I'm the living water. I'm the savior of the world. Come and drink or don't. Because there is no other stream. There is no other stream. Only Jesus saves. And you see the analogy of baptism here with water, right? You can't help but see it. Um, Second, only Jesus satisfies. In his book, Sahara Unveiled, William something or other, who I can't pronounce, uh, Lengenkwashi, uh, tells the story of an Algerian, another great name, Laglag, and a companion. They were, their truck broke down in the Sahara Desert. This is a true story. They're crossing the desert. They nearly die of thirst during the three weeks that they waited for, for rescue. They didn't eat because they, they didn't want to become more thirsty. They ran out of all their water, all their supplies. The only thing left they found that was liquid was radiator fluid. And they drank it. Their thirst drove them to drink poison. And this is what I think a, a powerful image of what the scriptures call sin. That, that, our, that our parched souls, remember what I said? It's not if you drink or not. It's what are you going to drink? Your soul is thirsty. It needs water. It's going to drink something. And our parched souls cut off from the living water. They'll drink just about anything. You know, classically, we turn to the three big ones, money, sex, and power. Although, you know, for four decades of my own life, I've seen myself turning to all sorts of things. It's almost like anything that's good, we can make an idol out of it, can't we? I've seen myself turn to friends. I've seen myself turn to food, to wine, to pleasure, to sleep, to entertainment, to video games, to GPAs, to soccer. To, I mean, I could go on. You guys, under, you, you've been there. You know it. Our souls are thirsty. Ask yourself, what are you turning to for satisfaction? What are you turning to for satisfaction, really? And then just like Carry that into the future a little bit. Is the thing you're going after now, the thing that you think, that's going to be, that's going to make me happy. What about tomorrow and next week and the week after and next year and when you're 80? What about on your deathbed? What's going to eternally satisfy you? Ask yourself that question. You know, sociologists coined the term the hedonic treadmill, hedonism, hedonic treadmill. It's a term that implies the more someone gets, the more they want. That's just a principle of, of at work, especially with money. The more you get, the more you want. And so when you're 20, you think, wow, if I could get $50,000, I'll be, I'll be rich. And then you get $50,000 in your late 20s maybe or early 30s, and you think, oh, I need 100000 And so, And it just, the target keeps moving. That's how it works. Always wanting more. Five husbands. The man you know now is not your husband. What's your version? Abdalraman was an 8th century monarch of Cordova in Spain, and he penned these memorable words. I have now reigned above 50 years in victory and peace. Beloved of my subjects, dreaded by my enemies, respected by my allies, riches and honor, power and pleasure, they've waited on my call. 
nor does any earthly blessing appear to have been wanting to my felicity. In other words, I have everything I've ever wanted. In this situation, then, I have diligently numbered the days of pure and genuine happiness which have fallen to my lot. They amount to 14. 14 days he's been happy. He's got everything he wants in 14 days he can count where he's been satisfied. And he says, oh man, place not thy confidence in this present world. And then he quotes Ecclesiastes. Whoever loves money or whatever other well you're going to never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. Earlier I gave two reasons as we close. I gave two reasons for the significance of the time of Jesus' thirst at Jacob's well, high noon. There is a third significance to the hour. High noon was the hour of Jesus' thirst upon the cross. This was the hour of his crucifixion, where he drank the cup of wrath. He drank the water of death so that you wouldn't have to. He thirsted for you more than he thirsted for his own life. And so he died thirsty. Like the rock that was split in the wilderness and poured forth water, Christ's body has been broken open to pour forth the water of life. And that's why only Jesus saves. No other God has done that for you. That's why only Jesus saves, and that's why only Jesus satisfies in the end. And so the invitation this morning as we come to the table is the same as ever. Come, says Isaiah 55, come. Come all you who are thirsty. That's, that's, the, that's the one necessary condition of coming to this table, really. I'm thirsty for Christ. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters that your soul may live. Father, would you help us to thirst for you as our hearts go after all these other wells, all these pools of water that doesn't actually satisfy us? Would you give us dissatisfaction with that? Only your spirit can do it. So would you do it and, and satisfy, satisfy, satisfy us in you that we might have eternal life now and in the age to come? Fill us with your spirit, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.